Welcome to the Week in Sports Cars on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers and my brother from Britain, that being the Graham Goodwin of DailySportsCar.com. How are you, my friend? Just getting home, I believe. Uh, just home from Monza and the European Le Mans series, and great to hear the well, the sounds of the ND500 behind you, Marshall. That's spectacular. Absolutely. We have cars on track. I'm actually watching Dragon Speeds. Ben Hanley continuing to do his rookie orientation program. Uh, just whizzing by us outside. Not whizzing, but the car is whizzing by. Um, and, yeah, they are attempting to make speed. I'm looking now. Where is Ben? Ben has turned uh, so far a peak of 214.7 miles per hour. A lot more to go, but keep in mind, these are the young lads' first ever laps at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and the team's first time competing here, the team's first everything. So definitely a blast to see our friend Elton Julian and our LMP2 winners across all kinds of continents and championships this year. Graham to be out here playing a little bit of open wheel stuff too, which is Elton's, I guess we could say, original background. So all kinds of fun. Where should we go? We've got a lot of questions. There wasn't a ton of sports car racing last weekend, but we never know this stuff, right? It's never super linear. When we have a big weekend with five championships running, sometimes we don't get a lot of questions. And then when there aren't lots, sometimes we get many. So I don't know. Where uh, should we got, go? Well, well, we've got many. Let's start this week with where Caslam's Elms and Akko, our friends at the ACO and the great motoring, motor racing products they go with. You want to fire these at me, MP? I am loading up the Weekend Sports Cars question cannon. Uh, highly, <laughs> highly compressed nitrogen canister. Hopefully you can duck. Hopefully I don't bean you in the head with too many of these. And again, as the official chooser of topics and what we choose throughout our show, all listener-driven, spanning IMSA, the WEC Aslams, Elms ACO, that being the WEC Asian Le Mans Series, European Le Mans Series, and ACO. And then also some of the things that don't quite fit all go into the general category. And then thankfully, because our dear listeners, like you, like me, either smart asses, snarky, you name it, we get some fun questions too that stray all over the place. But as the official chooser of questions, and this being your area of expertise, let me fire the first. This comes in from Stephen Gate, who says, Who is the high-profile new sports car entrant for P2 in the WEC next season with two Arecas? A current single-seater team looking to expand a la Carlin? Question mark. Uh, right, thanks very much, Stephen. The, uh, the, the question comes from a piece we wrote uh, from Monza uh, the, just before the weekend, talking about there being uh, a very healthy load of applications for the coming season, 2019-20 season for the FI World Insurance Championship. And yes, indeed, we believe there is a, an application from an as-yet-unidentified team with two Oricas, and it is as-yet-unidentified. I do believe this is a team from the world of single-seater uh, racing at a reasonably high level, but as-yet, the inquiries we've made um, it have not established just exactly who that's going to be. But we are looking at uh, the entry numbers for the... Uh, WC and LMP2 being into double figures for the coming year. 
We'll just go ahead and say Red Bull, just for absolutely no reason and just to make stuff up because it amuses us. No, 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 we should be more responsible. Uh, Let's go to Matthew Hawkins, who says, So, with the ACO coming off and saying the LMP1 contest will be a lot closer this June at Le Mans, what could we expect to see from that? Will the equivalence of technology be correct, or will they give a break to privateers like Spa? Uh, well, I think the answer is it wasn't a million miles away in terms of pace at Spa. Remember, we saw in qualifying trim at least uh, the lead of the S&P racing cars within, uh, well, something like half to three quarters of a second of either of the Toyotas and actually quicker this time. Uh, the problem is it's not the ultimate lap time, but race pace. And, of course, there's a massive advantage for the Toyota hybrids in terms of the kick they can get out of the corners and through traffic. Frankly, don't think anything at EOT can do about that. But what you can do about that is that you can stop putting false barriers in the way of the non-privateers. Equalizing fueling time, despite the fact that we know the privateers have to load more fuel, could only be a good thing in terms of getting a better race out of it. I think we'll learn a lot from the current mindset for the ACO we see how they come bundling into race week for the Mon 24 hours MP. Let's go to our pal right turn lover who says Monza seems to produce more safety car interventions than other ELMS races. Any idea as to why, Graham? It's an old-fashioned circuit. There's not a lot of runoff. You go off, it tends to be a pretty big one, uh, as we saw with the LMP3 car that caused one of the safety cars um, at the weekend. I think it's simply that it's that you're going to hit, you're going to hit hard. Speeds are high, runoff is low, damage is high. Uh, but you know, there's a there's a case to be made. Do you want the classic old racing circuits still in international motorsports, or do we want acres and acres and acres of gravel and hard standing runoff uh, to characterise every class one circuit? I think I'll go for the former for the moment. Graham, let's go to Lars, aka Kite Velocity. He says, regarding the ELMS at Monza, why was Dragon Speed pushed up to P4 after qualifying P5? That was because there was a penalty, and I'm struggling with memory to remember what exactly that penalty was. It was to the EDEX Sport 28 car, which had a fantastic run back up to the front from the back of the, remember, 19 car LMP2 grid. Trying to remember, MP, exactly what that penalty was levied for. It's a bit of an odd one. Uh, but that was what it was. Adex Sports uh, managed to uh, get themselves a penalty, started to the back, didn't get in the way for too long, though. You know, we have at least one or two, maybe three uses of the week in sports cars soapbox per episode. I believe we have our first uninvited soapbox entry. It Could this be the Twisk Soapbox Derby being led? by our listener, Ryan Terpstra. Although uninvited, heck, Graham doesn't invite me on each week, and it's my own show, so who cares? You don't have to be invited. We, we welcome any and all submissions. Ryan doesn't have a question for us. He has a soapbox moment. And, you know, if Ryan and others can listen to the two of us climb up on it, then darn it, we're going to listen to him. All right, here we go. I would like a brief Twitter soapbox to talk hypercar. When it was announced and a clear global DPI formula wasn't coming. I was disappointed. I wanted to see my favorite IMSA teams being able to compete against the best 
in the world at Le Mans. Plus, DPI was already a known quantity that was cost-effective with more manufacturer buying than I, than I can recall in the top class since before Audi began their reign. Simple works. Don't complicate things. Then the hypercar formula grew on me. Toyota was in. Jim Glickenhaus laid out his vision, and I was sold. Ferrari was an obvious candidate up till now, and I'm, I'm upset they can't get it together, and DPI seems likely. Robin Miller asked what makes a great race. Marshall in Toronto talked about each series evaluating what they do well and making sure they focus on that. Hypercar would have been what LMP, LMP1 does well. Unique, blistering performance. The politicians involved should be ashamed. I seem well, to recall that the last refrain being almost a weekly Graham Goodwin standard and Marshall Pruitt standard. So I don't know if we converted you to our bend here, Ryan, but it sounds like we at least have someone else in our army of guys, get it figured out or let someone else figure it out for you. I think, I think what I'll add to it, and thanks very much, Ryan, for the, indeed that uh, trademark soapbox moment, is it's a matter of who should be ashamed. I'm not really sure whether or not it's the ACO, whether or not it's the conversations between the different uh, sanctioning bodies, whether or not it's one other or all of the manufacturers, whether or not it's everything involved here. I actually think it's less, that, uh, less to do with something you should be ashamed about and more to do with the fact the goalposts have moved throughout this process. Whether or not it has been effectively managed is for others to judge. I think we will know by the Le Mans 24 hours where we stand. The meeting this week, at the working group, I believe the manufacturers will be asked in or out for the hypercar formula. If it's in, then we need to be finding out who and when. If it's out, we need to hear what plan B is remarkably quickly. I can tell you that around the same time that this edition of Weekend Sports Cars uh, is published, there will be an editorial on DSC, which makes my position very clear. was a big believer in it. I've now seen exactly what is going to be proposed for this formula. Not that impressed. So let's wait and see what comes out of the meetings this week. And then let's hear what we hear when it comes to the race week in June at Le Mans. Let's go to Smoking Puppy 841 who says, uh, which races force the WC to limit themselves to 36 cars or is it imposed by the FIA for another reason? Uh, the, answer to that, the answer to that one is very simple. It's always been, to this point, a limit forced on them by logistics. It is a limit they believe they can produce the best kind of turnaround in terms of the logistical package without having to invest further in more capacity for the kit and caboodle that comes to the International Race Service. So you'll recall, I'm sure, this means that we've got more of a uh, more numbers on the grid this year than we have in previous seasons. It's been 36 full season entries, but realistically 34. But beyond that, uh, we'll wait and see whether or not full means full at 36, 34, 32, or any other number. But generally speaking, it tends to be the uh, the number that they feel they can adequately transit between the race uh, race meetings. And nowadays, that's almost university vice. Let's go to Rob Horn, who asks, 
Why is there no Le Mans Cup at Silverstone this August? WEC is two hours shorter, and how long are the Le Mans Cup races? Makes sense, surely, as everyone ACO-related is at Silverstone already. I think a lot of it is actually paddock space. Uh, it's not a great deal of paddock space at the wing end of things. Obviously, the uh, ELMS operates uh, down from the national paddock. Uh, it's not just the racing. It's the fact that you would then have separate practice and qualifying sessions. That takes up a bigger chunk of time. There will be no reduction in the practice and qualifying time for the, uh, for the WEC. That means that, yes, you're absolutely correct. Six down to four means two hours extra time. But you're going to have to find, in addition to that, the free practice and the qualifying sessions if it's already a pretty packed uh, program. Let's wait and see what the WEC LMM produce in terms of the support package next, uh, next, next uh, this September. That's the reason why. Tom Bacon asks, are M-Tech in a position to continue running the BMW WEC team without factory support? Uh, the answer is I think they'd like to. I'm sure they'd, they'd prefer not to have to. Uh, will they? Uh, well, again, you know, I think the answer is, the answer I think we were getting from the M-Tech guys when we asked them those questions at Spa was they waiting on BMW, whether or not that's waiting on them with a hard stop or whether or not it's waiting on them as to the kind of level of support we can expect. We'll wait and see. Lots of waiting and seeing this week on the Week in Sports Cars. Stuart Haas asks, decision week for Hypercar, are we expecting any news out of the ACO and FIA? And I, at least how I perceive the question News is the operator here. Real news, not just a continuation of the no information, but anything we might consider and say that's newsworthy. I think the answer is we're not expecting anything officially out of them. Uh, we're expecting whatever there is to be related to the waiting media, the waiting public uh, at the Le Mans 24 hours. But the reality is that it's been such a leaky ship that I would expect that anything that is decided at that meeting will be out long before that. So nothing official, but the reality, I think, is that we're going to find out pretty darn quickly what's going on. Right Turn Lover's back, who says, do we know which question success penalties and ELMS is supposed to answer and who posed it, given the dependency of the current known shape of the uh, hypercar class? I hope it's not a statement of confidence by the uh, BOP folks. I think the answer is it's a combination of two things. BOP, there was a lot of criticism about the uh, relation between the BOP on the Porsches and the Ferraris last year. I think the second thing is it's an actor against dominance by a single crew that has managed to get around the driver ranking process. So far, we've just seen the first iteration of it with the second race in the LMS in Monza. Seemed to work pretty well. It did mean that we got a pretty close race. It comes in in a more profound way as we get into third and fourth and fifth races. Let's wait and see. I think at the moment, uh, I'm not seeing anything at crisis levels. Neither am I hearing terribly bit many moans and groans about it. Uh, but we're talking here the difference of up to around 30 kilos between cars in the same class. I think we wait and see how people think about this one when we get to Silverstone in September. James Counter asks, does the Baikalis team at Spa show how fast the LMP2s are running 
at a similar pace to the LMP1 non-hybrids, despite running to a faster set of regulations? I think the answer on the bike collars is sort of ignore SPA. SPA was really them getting up about and systems checks. Uh, I think the kind of pace you'll see from the car at, at uh, sorry at Le Mans will be rather more representative. Will it be up with the the, the LMP1 pack? Probably not. Will it be ahead of the LMP2s? I would expect that it should be. Uh, the package they had was pretty seriously compromised by the, the chassis being designed for a completely different engine. That will be fixed, we are told, in time for Le Mans. Quite how ready they are remains to be seen. All right, we're going to go to Thomas Pendergrass on the theme of trying to figure out what the heck the future is going to be, Graham. Thomas says, would opening up the current LMP1 non-hybrid class to OEMs be a viable option for the next few years in LMP1? I'll, I'll be honest with you, Thomas. I think it would be a perfectly viable option. I think they should do it. I think we, we are clearly going to be in a transition. No matter what, we're going to be in a transition. If hypercar is not going to be a thing, my guess would be they should throw the doors open and said, come one, come all. Uh, let's have whoever wants to come and bring a project uh, within the rule set that we've currently got uh, here for the next two or three years. What do I believe, think will happen? I think we're heading towards uh, Gen 2 DPI or something remarkably like it as a global formula uh, because I cannot see at the moment enough high-level OEM interest to rescue hypercar. Uh, whether or not I'm right or I'm wrong, we'll know soon enough. If I'm right, I think we've got a longer future ahead for the current breed of non-hybrid cars. And I think absolutely we should see uh, manufacturers coming in with non-hybrid LMP1 cars. Because sure as eggs is eggs, after next season, we won't be seeing the total CSO50 again. I think I read somewhere on the internet about DPI 2.0 being possibly adopted by the ACO, but I need to go double-check that. Uh, Chris Humphreys says, question for the both of you. LMP2 seems to be exploding in Europe currently, but when finally car car slash hypercar becomes top class and whack and LMP2s are slowed down, could this put people off LMP2 or reduce the overall interest in the class? Interesting angle. It, it is, as you'll see from the editorial, I've just been putting to bed tonight, uh, ready to go out at some point uh, on Wednesday in the U.K., that is uh, very much where I am at the moment in terms of my concern about the future of the of the pyramid of sports car racing. 19 cars, as I said, at Monza this last weekend. I'm expecting it to double figures the WEC. I'm expecting a healthy entry for the Asian Le Mans series of the new cars too. I just don't think you can mess with that. That right there is a grid all by itself. If you mess with that just to pick up another OEM, in the WEC, that strikes me as being very short, uh, short-sighted indeed. And I think we've seen the first signs that they're moving in that direction of thought with the move to 62, car, 62 cars this year. I mean, more of that deep, deep LMP2 field to come into it. And boy, did we have an LMP2 race at Monza this last weekend. If that's what we can expect from LMP2, either as a top class in the LMS or as a supporting class at WEC, then I'm all for it. Those cars are spectacular. Question here from Jacob Bain that's actually one I've been wondering about. It says, not asking necessarily about precise figures, rather about a general answer at least. Should hypercar not come to fruition or at least suffer a substantial uh, delay 
do you know how Jim Glickenhaus and his Scuderia Cameron Glickenhaus is planning to survive as a business and still be able to finance a WEC program when push comes to shove? I'd imagine their current model uh, offensive was, excuse me, at least partially tailored to meet deadlines viable for financing this hypercar program. Also, are there any names outside of podium engineering that are known to be associated with development or future running of the cars? I think the answer for Jim in particular is that the future of car car um, is absolutely crucial to his ambitions for the Le Mans 24 hours. Without that, I don't think he has a strategy to get there. Um, Ironically, Jim is in a position to be able to do either a prototype-based car or a road car-based car with SCG 003 or its successors. He'd already announced, of course, before Hypercar, a quite ambitious model range and time frame for cars into GT3 and GT4 uh, with his 004 and 005 models from memory. Uh, it was the 007 model that was initially designed to be the prototype basis for Hypercar. I, I would guess that Jim is waiting with limited patience for this decision. But my guess would be if Hypercar doesn't happen, that that would be the end of uh, the line for the moment, at least, for Glickenhouse's Le Mans ambitions. Ed Joris has sent in a wide variety of questions. I will pick one or two here. Uh, let's see. Is the ACOFA going to require that DPI manufacturers interested in Le Mans compete for the full season in WEC? And this is all assuming, of course, that that is indeed signed off as the new direction to go. What do you think? What have you heard? What is the Graham Goodwin view? Uh, well, let's, uh, th- so there's a couple of questions about DPR, a couple of questions about Toyota. Toyota's future involvement, I think, uh, relies on hypercar becoming a thing. Um, if it's not a thing, then I think they're gone after next year. If hypercar is a thing, they're around for the long term, without a shadow of a doubt, and will bridge the gap somehow. As for DPI, I, I cannot see there is any way we won't have some form of global product beyond the Continental Series that the ACO have got. The key to it is, will it be an FI World Championship? It is, I think, highly possible. We may end up with a scenario where we move back to something like the ILMC that we had in 2010 and in particular in 2011, which might have a really, how could I put this, might have a benefit to savor. Because there's nothing to say that the ILMC couldn't involve, for instance, one of the one or more of the Blue Ribbon events with IMSA, which might mean that you see the top class operating internationally, uh, basically cherry picking those big events. That might mean as well that some of the IMSA factory teams might uh, opt to do the odd race outside of the United States, including, of course, the Le Mans 24 hours. But let's not yet make the assumption that that's the direction things are going to make, are going to take, rather. That's a decision that has not yet been made. That decision will fall into line after we know what the future for hypercar is going to be. James Counter asks, Graham Monza saw two drivers have hospital stays due to separate crashes there. One driver being hospitalized is a notable occurrence. Is there something about the temple of speed which lends itself to significant injuries, or is it just two guys being unlucky? 
it was two completely separate instances, and, and you know, get well soon to both Leo Roussel and Mark Patterson. Uh, Mark lost it um, coming into the braking area in terribly wet conditions, was unlucky enough to catch out uh, himself and indeed take out the sister car of the team. Leo, in an accident yet to be uh, fully explained, had a problem coming into the parabolica and impacted the barrier hard, uh, f- uh, full frontal impact from Ligier. That Ligier was back out and running for qualifying later that day. Uh, Leo had surgery today. We're recording this on Tuesday. I gather that went well and should be actually making his way home uh, at the end of the week. Uh, Mark Patterson was out of, out of hospital by the time we got to race day. And I've seen pictures of Mark uh, accepting visitors at his hotel, still on crutches with some pelvic, some minor, some small pelvic fractures rather. He should be making his way home by this weekend. So you're absolutely right. Uh, two completely unrelated accidents. Get well soon to both of them. Remember, one was an impact with another car. The other was an impact with the wall. Uh, but it, you know, Monza is a a a track of very very high speeds and unforgiving when you go off. That said. We had remarkably few major incidents over the weekend with an awful lot of cars on track. We're down to our last three Weck Aslam Elms ECO questions, Graham. Let's go to Holger Olpelt, who says, Is Jean-Eric Verne quasi out of competition at G-Drive Auris? Says he already missed two rounds of the ELMS and was well replaced by Norman Nato. Uh, Do they have to keep Nato to preserve his championship ambitions in the ELMS? Uh, no, the answer is it was always the it was always the case that uh, they were going to have to replace John Eric Verne for the first two races. They both clashed with Formula E. That is his prime program for the year. Uh, Jeff will be um, in for the remainder of the season. It's not about championship ambitions for anybody other than the team. So the best possible package they can come up with. Would we'll say by the way, the weekend great stuff for Norman Nato. Amazing stuff by young Job von Utert. Uh, fantastic uh, uh, stint times from Job von Utert and took as well, uh, I believe, the LMP2 lap record on old rubber, whereas others were running at the same time on newer rubber. So great run from him. And I know already that people are beginning to ask about that young man. All right. Down to the last two. At the ELMS this weekend, we saw the dominance of the Eureka over the Ligier and the Delara. What is the major factor in the Eureka being quicker than the other two? Uh, that comes from Tigera380 from Reddit. Uh, it's aero, aero, and aero. We saw some great defensive drives from one or two of the other drivers, notably uh, from Alex Brundle, who put up a fantastic fight in a fight against Paul Luc Chatin. Um, mid-race and uh, came home with a uh, podium for his troubles. But no doubt at all, the Orica 07 has a notable uh, aero advantage. And that comes principally, I believe, from the fact that they had an easier carryover from the older 05 and, of course, parallel programs with both the Rebellion R1 and now the Rebellion R13 uh, to develop aero and to tweak that aero uh, through the life of the Orica 07. So Orica, I'm afraid, got up and running with a bit of a head start on the rest. And I know that's an area that the other chassis manufacturers were not very amused about. 
All right, we're going to go to Mr. B underscore 66 to close your portion of the show. Just want to say thanks for the early week recording, considering I have a New York City to Tokyo flight tomorrow night. Hopefully we're not missing that, uh, and if so, we suck. Uh, working on an assumption that DPI 2.0 does end up being the chosen global formula. Could they be ready for a late summer 2021 debut for the start of the 2021-2022 WEC season, or is it already too late to push up the start date? I think the answer is we're not sure at all exactly what has been discussed. Whether or not it's been discussed that it will come in with the current cars as uh, an equivalent uh, equivalency formula, whether or not it would start with DPI 2.0 in 2022, whether or not there's a conversation about whether things might be pushed forward, whether you can mix and match. The honest answer is we don't know. And we don't know for a very good reason the decision hasn't yet been taken. I think once we know what's happened with Hypercar, they'll be in a better position to be able to start to make and relay those decisions out the waking, uh, the waiting world. Because one thing is absolutely for sure, if this is going to be a global formula, if this is what's going to be at the top of sports car racing uh, in the near future, we're going to need a lot more factories than we've currently got to take interest in that formula to make it tick across two major championships. Well, having just covered three or four major championships, as my colleague Robin Miller coughs in the background, where shall we wander next official weekend sports car chooser of categories? I think it's got to be to the wonderful, wacky world of IMSA. And uh, it's my turn to serve them up to you, mate. Uh, we're going to go to Chris, uh, Chris Alfby, who asks, um, if you had to pick four chassis pl- suppliers for DPI 2.0, who would they be, uh, be? Hashtag me personally would choose Delara, Riley, if they agree to make it one, Orica and Lola, if they even exist anymore. I'll answer one quick bit of that. Lola, Lola don't exist anymore in any meaningful sense, that would now be Ultimatic and not Riley. Over to you. I, well, you've chosen most of them, Chris. Delara for sure. Areca for sure. Uh, I mean, Liget, obviously, that's a huge part of their business. So if we're just limiting it to four, well, we also have Multimatic, which was in partnership with Riley, uh, has de-Riley-fied the car almost entirely would say they would certainly be one to consider. Uh, I would also, just for variety, I know you said four, so I'm, I'm leaving open, open an option for the fourth. Uh, if it's not Multimatic, I would say maybe Norma. I've been really impressed with what Norma has done with their LMP3 car, definitely taking on. They're in a losing numbers game in every LMP3 event, and yet they seem to fare extremely well. So since I'm definitely always siding with David and not Goliath. Got a couple of Goliaths in there, if not all Goliaths, in terms of volume and capability. So, yeah, just for fun, maybe I'd go with Norma for that final spot. Uh, And if we're just talking merit, Graham, obviously the uh, Areca has been the dominant. We can say that Delara has not had the numerical... I guess, infra data to tell us across multiple championships, especially here in the U.S. at least, that that car is uh, really excellent in LMP2 form. But we can say that as a DPI, that has been super dominant. So, again, you take Areca and their dominance in LMP2. I've seen that the 
Uh, Acura has been very, very capable. We've seen that the Multimatic has been very capable now that it's been fully worked. The Liger with the Nissan has been very successful, too, uh, given some of the constraints that they have not being a full-fledged factory effort there. Uh, so, yeah, honestly, I might just end up going with the same four that we have, but I do like the idea of maybe they're, if I could throw it out to a fifth, I'd say normal would be the one for sure. One other point, Chris, uh, as we said just before Marshall answered the question, for Lola in Old Money, read Multimatic, for Courage in Old Money, read Orica, and for Pescarolo in Old Money, read Ligier. That's where the kind of the family heritage kind of comes back to. Um, Douglas Parker uh, asks MP, where do you see LMP2 next year in IMSA? Beside the one edition coming towards the end of this season, have you heard of others interested in joining LMP2 for the full season? Honestly, Doug, I'm not saying that we can or won't have additional cars. We know that one of the two existing teams running has expressed an interest in adding a second car later in the year, that being the Pier 1 Matheson program. Um... I mean, a year from now, I struggle to see how LMP2 is still a class. If it's still just two, maybe three, it's my own informal rule in my head, but it says you must have more cars than it takes to fill a podium in order for it to be a class. And unless we can at least get to that point and have four, uh, I'd say five might need to be the absolute bare minimum, but... Unless there's a real question as to whether who will or will not be on the podium, I would say you can't be a class. And so this year, obviously, they intended, they thought that they are going to have a very robust LMP2 class. Uh, after announcing it, after some committed, some others went in different directions. So not blaming IMSA, just saying that despite the best of intentions, the end result has been not great and unless there's a an early commitment during the off season to four or five full-time cars i think that it needs to go away because just keeping a class around for two teams running a single entry they're important not saying they are not but it'd be one thing if both of those cars had full-time drivers full-time everything we've seen a fair bit of jumbling having to take place just to get people into those cars co-drivers more often than not from round to round even this early in the season so um i don't know if we see this class return and i don't hold that against imsa they tried they hoped they had feedback saying that it might be a success just hasn't been a couple of questions that follow on the lmp2 theme one comes from jacob bame uh, asks last year's core autosport ran the lmp2 spec orica 07 in uh IMSA, uh, pretty clearly with a lot of success. What's happened to that chassis? Is it still in port, uh, cause possession? What could be the next thing for it? A return to the uh, now split P2 chassis in order to help IMSA? Maybe a conversion to an accurate DPI? I haven't heard anything about it being sold. I could be wrong, Jacob, so I'm sure I'll be corrected if I am wrong. I think they might still have the car uh, as our pal Robin is still coughing, unfortunately. Um... I believe they still have it. As for what might happen to it, hard to say there. Uh, Penske's contract extends through 2020 in terms of exclusivity, a three-year program uh, with Acura. So, uh, yeah, I I think this is a great question, Jacob. It's just one that looks very far into the future and has some caveats. Um, who even knows? And who knows if Acura would... 
make their engines and bodywork available after 2020. It might just be a new contract to Penske. It might be a contract to a different team to take over the program. We simply don't know because it's too early to tell. So uh, I can tell you, though, that if there's a chance for CORE to pick up that, uh, that contract, they would certainly be one to consider for it if that is something that Acura and HPD was uh, really wanting to take seriously. Uh, there's a further question about a completely different chassis. It comes from George Buda, who says, what do we know about the Raleigh Multimatic P2 program? Is there still a possibility to see a car running somewhere? Are there any teams out there who still own the LMP2 car? Hey, Georg, I know you've sent this in a couple of times, so apologize here, taking a while to get to it. Uh, I know absolutely nothing in terms of anyone having a true intent to run the Riley Multimatic Mark 30 in LMP2 form. The last time I recall seeing it run was Daytona 2018 with the Bar 1 Motorsports team, and it was just dog slow because of excessive drag, and I think that poor showing just killed any chance of that car being seen as a viable solution for anyone. I would just say quickly... Obviously, Graham, we have not seen that car in LMP2 trim run for over a year now. If we still had this blended P2 and DPI class and there was BOP and it was similar to what it was towards the end of last year where LMP2s or DPIs could take the win anywhere, it was uh, very, very equal in many instances. Uh, This Riley Multimatic might actually be a car to consider for the two street courses because it had uh, lots of downforce, did have drag. It certainly carried more drag than the other cars, but that's not necessarily a huge concern when getting to a street course or the two types of street courses that we have, both the Belle Isle one in Detroit that IMSA visits, which doesn't have much of a straightaway and is just lots of turning. Even at Long Beach, another one which does have a couple of longer straightaways, still a car that in BOP range of the DPIs, it could actually be a little bit of a secret street fighter uh, for someone to try and employ to go out and sneak a win uh, off of everyone else. But I just think that would be such a remote uh, pie-in-the-sky type scenario for someone to explore. I can't think of anybody with the money or real-time or interest to buy one, find out if a year and a half later it could still do that again, and now we have split classes. So just fantasy scenario, if we were to go back to uh, join classes next year and try and do the same BOP, have everything equal equal again, uh, someone might actually, if they had the money and the curiosity, there might be something special there to exploit, but only at these two circuits where, honestly, uh, cornering speed, straight line speed aren't a super factor. Uh, well, from LMP2 to a couple of questions about GT makes in IMSA Racing. Adam Bowman says, with some of the recent success of the Aston Martin, a win at Spa, pole at Sebring, has there been any word on a possible American partner? American partner. I'm trying to think of anything that comes to mind in terms of real, real, real. Uh, anything real. I don't know. I, I think I might be stuck in here with nothing super, super serious to offer. And I hate that. What about you, Graham? Uh, the answer on this one is they're certainly still looking for a partner. I think things have changed a little for Aston Martin. Uh, they obviously are now a public company here in the UK. 
And that, it has to be said, the launch of that share uh, offer was not the searing success that they hoped it would be. So they're rebuilding, recovering some of that ground lost. What that means is that there might well have been a bit of a divide between what Aston Martin thought they were looking was they found was available in the marketplace. So the answer is still an active search. It may be as less of an immediate priority than it was maybe a year ago now uh, for us. So let's wait and see. All right. Where should we um, go next, my friend? Well, from Aston to Audi and uh, Nick Detweiler, the uh, past few seasons Zimsa, Audi R8 hasn't been much of a title challenger. Seeing how competitive the car is in other series abroad, I wondered if this is an issue with Imsa's BOP. Do they have it out for Audi? Or are the teams running the cars just not getting it done? Can't remember the last time an R8 not run by Land Motorsport won in Imsa. That's a great question, Nate. And in, just in terms of things I might offer, in terms of an answer, they're maybe more generic than specific, which I apologize for. Obviously, the Land team has just been excellent altogether both on the driving front, the engineering, the strategy, all boxes that need ticking, they have been ticking, I think, with uh, immense, immense quality and consistency. The one knock I can mention uh, to Audi here in the U.S., and this just comes from speaking to other GTD teams, maybe those who have run Audis and left, or those who are with a different mark and have maybe spoken with Audi about possibly switching they have a reputation. This is Audi of America, not our friends in Germany, but Audi of America have a reputation uh, for being the poorest in terms of providing support to their Pro-Am GTD teams. What is support? Is that straight-up money? Is it free spare parts? Is it R&D time, time paying for time on a seven-post shaker rig? You can name a variety of support items that would make a Pro-Am team better as a result of aligning with a manufacturer. Some might say, but wait a minute, aren't, isn't this true Pro-Am GT3? You buy the car and then it's incumbent upon you, the owner, to modify, you know, to, to modify the various settings that you can work with. Everyone has the same template to work from, and it's upon you, the team owner, car owner, to get the most out of it. All true, but the, the hidden layer here, the underreported, underpromoted item, is the fact that every single manufacturer I know of, to varying degrees, some more than others, provide help. In some cases, quietly, it's cash. It's just straight-up money being paid to the team. Uh, it comes in other forms, spare motors, you, you name it. Uh, a lot of ways that a manufacturer can help its team, even though these are not, quote, factory teams in GT3 slash GTD. But that's what happens. That's what takes place. There are differing levels, as you well know, Graham, of incentivization and the reputation. So I'm not claiming it to be true. I don't own or run an Audi R8. LMS GT3, so I can't make any claims from personal experience, but I can tell you that within the paddock, and for more than a year now, possibly two, there has been a very strong drumbeat that of all the GT3 manufacturers to consider aligning with, uh, Audi might be the one spending the least, 
investing the least in, in trying to improve its car and the technical information it might pass down to its customers, et cetera, et cetera. So reputationally, I think there might be something there, Nate, that kind of sort of gets to the heart of your question. A question from Brett Ross. Uh, seemed like the Cadillacs were a little behind the competition at Mid-Ohio. Do you think the competition has caught up? Or is it certain cars perform better on certain tracks? I would say we have BOP as the the constant thing that is being managed. Cadillac is always the one needing to be pulled back. Would say as well that with where the Acura was at Long Beach and then again at Mid Ohio, they should have won both races based on BOP. Also, just knowing that there's a lot of testing going on at Mid Ohio. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we just have a case where that car is very adept at mid-Ohio, but it should, again, have won both races. You know, Look, the Cadillac has proven from the very first race that it was the overdog and has continually been slowed down and slowed down. And although IMSA has done a, a wonderful job of finding the tools and mechanisms to do that very ably, it's still a car that is so dang good that it needs, in their opinion, to be pulled back more and more from time to time. So for a car that won the 24 hours of Daytona and won the 12 hours of Sebring, not a huge surprise that the snapback reaction was getting its ears uh, tugged back a little bit at Long Beach and again at Mid-Ohio. Another question about Mid-Ohio, actually uh, a completely different theme, comes from our mate Floodman from the USCR Reddit group. It's a little late, but your thoughts on finishing the race in Mid-Ohio and local yellow? Hashtag me personally. Thought it was great to be brave enough to leave the fast car there for the last six minutes. Thinks that uh, if it wasn't at the end of the race, it would probably have fought more yellow day. Thoughts? Great question, Jamie, and I think someone might have asked something similar last week, and I completely failed or brain farted to get to it so really cool thing that i learned shortly after the race specifically on uh the number nine faf motorsports porsche that uh, spun in turn one and kind of got wedged and could not be easily extracted with scott hargrove at the wheel so there was what five six minutes left or something like that in the race normally it would be a reason to throw a yellow get the car out of there very likely would have uh, ended the race under yellow all because the possibility of that car being struck by another car if it flew off, or who knows if the driver was still in it, uh, they could have been hit and hurt. Really interesting call by IMSA to do none of the above and leave the car there. And I believe the thing that helped facilitate that decision, Jamie, and what I appreciated about this is on the FAF team, uh, I'm, I apologize, I'm forgetting his name, but they have a, a new and relatively young race strategist and the minute that Hargrove went off, and again, it was clear the car was not going to be extracted easily by him, they apparently jumped on the SMS system, the, uh, the text messaging system directly to and from race control, and asked, what can we do to help? All from the mindset of not wanting to force the race to go yellow. They said, Scott said he can get out of the car right now, jump over the fence, be out of the way, you name it. They said, go for it, please do. Just really impressive to me here, Jamie, where a team, simple mistake. I mean, Scott is beyond talented, but hey, a mistake. Uh, Car was beached, 
and the team's first thought was, dang, the timing of this could actually ruin the end of the race. Let's get on the horn to IMSA's race control and ask, sorry we made a mistake, but is there anything we can do to make your day easier? And great communication flow, great decision made. Scott got out of the car. Car stayed there again. Someone could have, in theory, spun off and nailed it. Uh, But nonetheless, I was really good with that decision and also really appreciate the fact that we have a team saying, we want to do the best we can to be the best members of the paddock and help keep the race going for the fans. Uh, one I know we've been around the houses with before. Where is Alessandro Balzan from Douglas Holtzman on Facebook? Seeing there's any information on where Balzan's been, seems like a pleasant presence to the paddock. Haven't seen him so this year. I think he even ran a GT Open a few years back. Haven't seen him in anything lately. I think he's under contract still to... Scuderia Corsa, is he not? That is where I saw him. He is alive, so no need to send out a search party. I have witnessed, it was either Alessandro Balzan or Bigfoot dressed, a very short Bigfoot dressed as Alessandro Balzan, uh, standing beneath the lift gate at Mid-Ohio, directly across from the Scuderia Corsa WeatherTech Ferrari team, staying out, uh, staying dry, uh, getting out of the rain. So saw him, waved to him, waved to me or whatever, and Great to see him. Uh, yeah, I, I have to admit, first of all, Douglas, thanks for sending this in. I know I think you're on third or fourth try. Seen him. I don't know if he's a reserve driver or otherwise, but, yeah, the fact that he's not in a car bums me out. Doesn't surprise me, though, since we had the uh, the WeatherTech team shift over to Scuderia Corsa, where, when it was, call it a, a quasi-works-affiliated Ferrari effort. Alessandro was the pro. Christina Nielsen was the am. Uh, he was the hired gun, but with the factory affiliation. Now, with the WeatherTech participation, they're certainly paying for everything, making all the calls, and so nothing negative there whatsoever. Uh, super happy to see Tony Vlander involved. Just, uh, I think it's no longer a case where Scuderia Corsa uh, has the majority say in who the pro in the pro-am relationship would be. Therefore, young Mr. Balzon is not currently uh, an active participant in the number 63 Ferrari 488 GT3. Uh, one here from our friend Ruslar from the USCR Reddit group. Um, it's a very tongue-in-cheek follow-up to last week's question about why Bentley doesn't have an IMSA. Does VHE get any kind of bulk discount on the manufacturer fee, given they've had up to four, they have up to four brands entered, the car count well into double figures, plus WeatherTech and Michelin Pilot Series, plus two complete single-make championships? From what I understand... IMSA provides the VAG group with a series of scratchers. Um, And so with the little coin, just like you do going to your local gas station to get your lottery tickets, uh, that's exactly what it is. So it's a little scratcher, and they get out a coin and and scratch the uh, foil off to then see exactly how much they have to pay. And so I believe that's the mechanism in which they determine how much money needs to go out the door, considering there are so many brands that they happen to represent or i just pulled that up my that out of my backside and no i don't believe they get a bulk discount uh but it does sound like a great idea we just we just have to wait and see whether or not we get an entry from ducati and gtd next year i suppose really there mp um let's have a quick look here uh from our friend cookie monster 
again for the Reddit group, two related questions. What, in your opinion, does the elongation of OEM error boxes to DPI 2.0 mean realistically for Starlink use? No more Oracle accuracy. Naturally, one would assume some more, more OEM starting queues, but I've heard that no current marks utilizing all of the current reg space. Is there any truth to this? I would love to be the guy that gives you insights on this. I'm drawing a significant blank, so I think this might be something I need to explore a little bit further. Don't be afraid to throw this question back. Dear Cookie Monster FL, uh, I wouldn't say in the coming weeks because I'm going to be stuck in here at Indianapolis. But once we get into June, throw this one back at me and I will do my best to learn once we get to something in the general Lamar region to answer this instead of just sounding like a monkey who knows absolutely nothing. No worries. Let's move on. Let's move on to some of the general questions. Um, I'll ask myself the first one here. It comes from uh, Luke Birkin on Twitter. There's a couple of questions about the Blonde Pan GT series. Why are there no Nissan or McLaren involvement this year? Also, why do they use full core shiller then go to a normal safety car before going green? Well, Nissan, uh, a reasonably sad tale of a lack of factory support in any way whatsoever for GT racing globally now outside of Japan. So that's that one. McLaren, two double uh, A sword there. The first one was course, Garage 59, switching to Aston Martin after the organization behind Garage 59 was involved in lengthy court proceedings with McLaren over their rights to continue to market and sell uh, parts of the cars that they used to operate and build when they held the license to build McLaren GT cars. There was a potential McLaren GT3 program for Pompan. That didn't come to pass. The team involved in that uh, decided to go a different way with their racing products. As for the uh, full-course yellow goal to a normal safety car before going green, I strongly suspect that does have some common sense to it in safety terms, but it strikes me as being very much a made-for-TV solution. Speaking of made-for-TV solutions... Our pal Rick Radica, hey Rick, says, I'm interested to learn what do most drivers drink or prefer in their, quote, water bottles. I would love to share the story of with the Indie Lights team that I worked for back in the 90s before I got there as a Genoa racing team, uh, team owner Genovese uh, had a Italian driver by the name of Guido Daco and they were somewhat mortified to find that his drink bottle was truly a drink uh, in the celebratory sense of going out to the pub and having a good time with your friends because good old Guido, I guess maybe he was trying to employ the, the stereotypical Italian or French lunch with a little bit of vino. He was putting red wine in his drink bottle (laughs) and was never caught by officials. Just the team decided, hey, you know, maybe you should not be driving a race car and actively consuming alcohol at the same time. Um, As for the rest of drivers, there's certainly some preference. Water, I mean, that's the obvious one. Something with some form of electrolyte replacement is not uncommon. 
So you get a lot of, uh, you also have for the drivers who have physios and whatnot, you can get a variety of concoctions, potions and powders. I know that looking at my wife, my wife's daily intake of potions and powders in li- that she stirs up in drink bottles and otherwise, it's taken over about 25% of our kitchen, not an exaggeration, and it is BCB plus with the XY extract of the this, that, and the other, all of these things that either combat something, improve something, or otherwise. So, Rick, I'd love to say that there's just one thing, but knowing how fitness has really become almost a standard high-level uh, activity for every driver trying to perfect themselves, uh, what they take into their body has also become highly specialized. So I wish I could just say folks either put water or Gatorade in there, but honestly, I think it, for a lot of them, uh, it could be it could be one of many many different things. So it might, the answer might actually be you might need to ask individual drivers because it has become a very individual choice instead of just to throw some water in there and off we go. I, I personally prefer a McDonald's thick vanilla milkshake in mine. It helps with the lip muscles as well. Um, let's go for Johnny Schulter on Twitter. In your opinion, which sports car series currently offers the best uh, benefit-to-cost ratio either factories or privateers? Can I throw this one in quickly? I think, although I've only seen a handful of these races, but I'm just constantly amazed, Graham, at the impressive car counts and the quality Pro-Am blend, I think the ELMS, either in P2 prototype form or just straight-up GT form, at least externally, I can't think of any any serious international series uh, or domestic series that maybe uh, compares as well as what I've seen with the ELMS of late. I tend to agree with you, is the honest answer. In terms of the tracks it goes to, the track time you get, the four-hour races, six of them. You get reasonably preferential status in terms of the potential to be accepted for the uh, the the Mon 24 hours. It's a short enough season that there's opportunities for people to do other things. You then get the Asian Le Mans series, which is shorter, uh, but with four-hour races and much better odds of getting to the Mon 24 hours. For me, I think ELMS is a massive plus in terms of the entertainment, the depth we're getting to those grids and the value for money compared to either other continents or global products. Uh, it's, a great, it's a great one. The only other one I would bring to it, MP, is, and it's for a completely different reason, is the IGTC in GT3 racing because it gives factories an opportunity to have some kind of branded presence with remarkably little expenditure on their part. I think that's been a head-turning moment for the ACO in terms of their WEC program. We'll see in the coming weeks just how telling that's been. Let's go to Brett Ross, who says, Graham, have you been to the Indy 500? And if so, what did you think? Uh, If not, do you want to go? Uh, Well, I feel like I'm there right now listening in the background. (laughs) But the answer is, I haven't been. Um, It is very much on my bucket list. Um, it's just the, the problem with the Indy 500 generally is it tends to sit in amongst the truly busy part of the European season. 
and certainly in the lead up to the Le Mans 24 hours where there's an awful lot of prep that needs to be done. So, for instance, we just finished at Monza this weekend. Uh, for the first time this weekend uh, ever, I'm actually off to do something I've never done before, which is I'm doing the TV for British GT at Stetson this weekend uh, within the team there as a one-off. I have done radio for British GT before that, but never, uh, never the uh, TV before. And then after that, it gets very busy commercially. But sure, as eggs is eggs, when life slows down a little, I'll be diving on a plane and getting some tips from Marshall Pruitt on whose floor I can sleep on uh, to go and watch that fabulous race. It sounded like you just said get some tits from Marshall Pruitt, so I, I'm just going to leave that there because I don't want to touch it. Um, let's go to the next question. This is from Justin Stinson. It says, on numerous occasions you've discussed the potential for Porsche to join IndyCar. That's now not a thing, but, uh, well, funny. How's this, Justin and Graham? We're going to find out if any of my Week in IndyCar listeners are actually listening here. I have heard that this might have picked up a little bit, that there might have actually been, after things being at no, I've heard there might be a new round of conversations possibly set to take place. So, all right, there's a little IndyCar nugget I'm dropping here just because I'm feeling mischievous. Uh, Justin says, my question is twofold. First of all, will BMW throw their hat into the IndyCar ring, given their existing relationships with uh, Bobby Rahal's team as well as Jaron Reinbold? Uh, DRR being an IndyCar team and one also, I believe, a prominent BMW dealer here in Indianapolis. Likewise, could you please explain the engineering advantages or disadvantages to BMW's inline twin-turbo 6 versus IndyCar's twin-turbo V6? And could that difference potentially keep BMW on the outside looking in? Thanks. Love the podcasts. Interesting stuff here, Justin. Um... I can say, I don't know if I've written this, but hey, this is just the say things we feel like saying uh, week in sports cars episode. BMW was among the nine manufacturers at the DPI steering committee meeting held at Mid-Ohio the uh, Thursday of the event there. I know that we wrote about, I think I mentioned the four current manufacturers were there. Not a surprise. In addition to those, we had Ferrari. We had Lexus. We had BMW. Um, I believe Lamborghini might have been one of them. And I'm slightly brain farting on the fifth right now. Uh, So if I remember that, I'll throw that in. But BMW was one of those sitting in. Not a big surprise. We've known that they've held an interest. Uh, Ford was the other one. Um, The length of the inline six would be the primary issue here. If we're talking about uh, something that might be taken from sports cars, or production cars and brought over Justin. Uh, obviously, a V6 is only three cylinders long, and inline six obviously is double that. So, being able to fit within what we expect to be another spec chassis in IndyCar when that comes down here in a couple of years, yes, that would be the biggest issue of all. So, uh, a V configuration would certainly be the one, and we have been told by IndyCar that a V6 2.4 liter will be the bespoke formula for folks to build towards so no creativity allowed outside of that unfortunately uh where should we go next my friend uh let's go for alex eichmiller from facebook watching world challenge tc coverage last night with cars like the bmw 2 series the nissan 370z or z uh if you can't speak properly and the super brz or brz if you can't speak properly uh is there a room for a global formula cars like these somewhere in between TCR 
and GT4. Well, why don't you take that one, my man? Well, let's have a track. I don't have a, a problem. So I think it's a, a great way in to production-based uh, racing, something like, I guess, GT5, although oddly enough, both the 370Z and indeed the Subaru BRZ in uh, Toyota guys have been GT4 cars, of course. Might there be an opportunity for an even more junior formula? Yes. I think it needs time for GT4 to bed in and grow in its current format. Uh, but see, no reason at all why some kind of junior you know, sports car, touring car formula with some sort of rules framework around it couldn't be possible in the future. Let's crack on with... Uh, our friend Kiwi Chris 1709 for the WC Reddit. We're coming into 24-hour season, certainly in Europe, with Le Mans, Spa and the Nürburgring over the next few months. What tips would you give a fan who might be new to 24-hour racing to help them get the most out of the race? Oh, that's a great one. Uh, I can't think of anything that's truly unique or original. Maybe these are just items, Graham, that have become standard. But the fact that folks are now able through their own screen on their phone, possibly a tablet if you want to hack two screens, some really good uh, Bluetooth headphones or similar, if you're just trying to consume 24-hour racing in whatever form, I think most places you would go will have the ability for you to follow timing and scoring through, again, some sort of mobile device. You might be able to live stream as well on that same device or a second one and to pick up, hopefully, quality, not always the case, but quality radio commentary as well. That, to me, has really just transformed the viewing and enjoyment experience so that if you are, who knows where, out in some faraway corner and you can see that corner in a little bit of section of track but you're missing the rest of it, There's really no need, provided there's a mobile signal that's of any strength or quality, there's no need to be on uh, on an island of information. So you can indeed watch and see what's happening elsewhere by live streaming that broadcast, by listening to the commentators share whatever it is they are presenting, and then the live uh, timing and scoring as well. Those are the things I tend to bounce around uh, almost every time I'm at an endurance race and it just makes me feel as someone who has to report on it as well uh, that I can fill my brain with all kinds of information and if I miss something grab a replay etc etc so just among those things there I'd say that would be pretty good just for other enjoyment possibly bring a camera uh, photography now is something where I see so many folks with uh, whatever they might choose to shoot with but going and, and definitely trying to capture some some great memories not just with their phone but some sort of prosumer camera to uh, make some cool memories there too uh, i'll add this much and i think that's great tips there uh you're right about uh, whatever you can get by way of streaming media make sure that if you're not in your home country you've got enough data on your plan even if you have to buy something more for that month so you're not going to run out of data make sure you've got an external power source so Putting the bottom of your day pack, uh, a couple of booster batteries for your, your kit and caboodle and make sure you've got the right leads to do it. But get around the track. That's one of the beauties of 24-hour racing is you have time to do all of it. 
have time to go and see the race from a number of different vantage points. The month this year will be my 75th 24-hour race. Precious few of those have been as a spectator. And I must admit, the freedom that being a spectator at a 24-hour race offers is now something I regret not being part of my yearly routine. So use that opportunity to get out there and see the things that perhaps we don't. It will absolutely enhance your love of that part of this. But keeping an eye on what's going on is another part of it. Pick a favorite or two as well, because this is grueling. You know, it's 24 hours is an awfully long time to keep anybody's interest level up in something. Just making sure you've got a favorite or two from up and down that field including in the classes that are actually out there, I think it's a great way of keeping the enthusiasm levels up if, for instance, the weather turns a bit nasty. Should we sprint into fun to wind down and close out this maybe vaguely abbreviated episode? There's one here I think that's made for you, MP. Chris Ward from Facebook says, Marshall, being at Indy for a month, it's got me thinking, if you could put IMSA or WC machine on an oval for a one-off race, what track would it be and why? Hashtag, me personally, I'd love to see them at IMS or Talladega just for the unbridled speed that could be unleashed. Hopes to run into you in the opening day at Indy. Hey there, Chris. Well, my, uh, my monkey butt is sitting here in the media center recording a show, so I guess I'm not doing a very good job of being available to be seen. Um, here's what came to mind, and it's unfortunate, but that's my mind. I would love to see... GTLM slash GTE cars on the 7 8 mile Iowa Speedway. It is a little bull ring of a place. It, it might even be less. I, I could be wrong, but it, it's, it's under a mile. So under, uh, yeah, it's not super long. It has some intense banking in some portions, but the entire thing is not uh, high banked. It is just crazy indie car drivers talk about reaching almost seven g's at some points in qualifying just insane so the thought of throwing these priceless four gts porsche 911 rsrs corvette c7rs you name it on a tiny american bullring oval with some banking where there's going to be some of calvin fish's patented argy bargy taking place Oh, man, this just sounds completely amazing. I don't know if any of those cars would be capable of competing afterwards. There might be nothing left of them. There, it might just be drivers in their seats holding on to steering wheels, but it would be so much, so much fun to watch, Chris. Great stuff. Well, to finish it off, where else could we go but twist at Eurovision? Eurovision is coming this weekend. Twist gets a late entry to the competition. You, Marshall Pruitt, can choose anyone from the global sports car paddock. Drivers, engineers, crew chiefs, journalists. Who performs? Who do you get to write the song? Oh, Lord. Uh, Well, I'll make my offering. Yes, please. Uh, It would be a stage name uh, for Christoph Bouchou, of course. Who else? And I think he should do, in French, a cover of MC Hammer, for obvious reasons. You can't touch this. We have a winner right there. I've got nothing to add. I mean, we're done. 
Graham Goodwin, you have hit it out of the park. You might even hear the, the, the glorious Ohio bread tones of Michael Shank on the... I'm staring at a bank right now, Graham, in the media center of just where I am. Somewhat forward, there's four, eight, one... 20 televisions mounted overhead, all of them with Michael Shank speaking. So uh, we hear <laughs> beloved IMSA and IndyCar team owner here uh, coming off of a podium at Mid-Ohio and then his first ever IndyCar podium last weekend here at the Indy Grand Prix. So good on good old Mike. All right. Well, I think this is where we say farewell and say thank you we to do. Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. And thanks to you, Graham, for not only working hard and covering ELMS at Monza last weekend, but should we tell folks that Good old Graham Goodwin in DailySportsCar.com was inserting audio recording devices in some very happy places. Uh, We were indeed. Fingers crossed they'll be with us very soon on the Marshall Pruitt podcast because if they've come out as I heard them, uh, they'll be pretty spectacular stuff. MP for now, uh, enjoy IMS. It sounds bonkers from where I'm sitting and uh, it can only be louder where you are. Uh, but uh, we'll be with you next week for the weekend sports cars, and we'll be recording it from my hotel room. So if you hear lots <laughs> of cars and uh, twenty TVs overhead, I am doing something seriously wrong. Oh, and hey, Fernando Alonso is now creeping and heading into pit lane, and boy, isn't that exciting! And yeah, anyways, all right, Graham Goodwood, I'm going to speak to you next week. Thanks to everyone for listening. Apologies if there was a little bit too much ambient noise, but. Um, of the many things in the world that I can affect, uh, I cannot get these folks to come off track and be quiet while we're trying to record. But that just tells you how little influence I hold in the world of motorsports. All right, I'm Marshall Pruitt. That is Graham Goodwin. This is the Week in Sports Cars, and we will look forward to speaking to you next week.